All right, so thank you for listening. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio, and we publish it here for you to listen at your enjoyment. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, smoother than a fresh jar of Skippy peanut butter. Here we are on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7, HD3, Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide, live and on the scene 24-7 at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. You're listening to Anthro Alert. Uh, on this hour of Anthro Alert, our guest, um, well, we have two guests, but well, one of our guests is Laura. She's a Ph.D. student here at the University of South Florida Applied Anthropology Program. Um, and she will be talking to us about her, well, in part, part of her master's research looking at social student social movements in Haiti. And uh, returning for this hour is also Buki, who uh, just talked to us about microfinance in Nigeria. So uh, here we are. Uh, hope you're tuning in. You know, check us out on Anthro Alert. Dot com. Tweet at us at AnthroAlert. Facebook, we're there somewhere. And, of course, you send us a text message, 802-552-4487. My name is Renee, and you're listening to AnthroAlert. And uh, so this show, it's about anthropology, why it matters. Each week, we discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events, just basically give us the rundown on the work that they're doing and how it's anthropological. We believe that this show is really a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to learn more about the field and better connect with the USF community and, of course, raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective because it is ever so valuable, uh, especially in this day and age. Uh, so we like to preface each of our shows with a disclaimer that the statements we make and the opinions we express on Anthro Alert are our own opinions and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, the USF Anthropology Department, USF Student Government, <coughs> or any other opinion thing whatsoever. Yep. So, <laughs> so hey. All right. So should we just dive right in? Yeah, let yeah, let's um let's ask a question for Laura. Laura, what's up? How are you doing? Hello. Hi. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so glad that you all have made this space available for anthropologists to talk about their work and I hope I hope we have a lot of people listening. Hi everyone. Hi yeah. listeners. So all four people are gonna get a yeah. good, good show today. <laughs> Great. Great. They're they're in for a treat. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even think my mom's listening. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Well, that's... Well, oh, they oh. can listen at a later date because you can listen to all of these podcasts that are audio recorded on anthroalert.com. So if you miss some, make sure to do that. That's great to know. Thanks. Yes. Yes. They will They will be on there. Um, so, Laura, talk to us about student activism in Hades and your project, particularly with some students... Um, it was narratives from students, you know, surrounding um, a, a professor there at a university that actually that got killed. Correct. This is correct. He was assassinated. Okay, so well, so give us some background on that. Sure. Um, can I back up a little bit to talk about my my well to talk about me? Yeah, to absolutely. talk about uh, yeah. what what got me into anthropology. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's we so love connected. those stories. Um, yes. 
I really came to anthropology as a as an activist myself. Um, I found that when I started learning about what anthropology was, right, figuring out what was important to people, what um, what has meaning to people, how how people's social relations are configured, that's actually so important for people who want to make changes in the world to understand, right? If you want to organize with people, um, and I was a uh, at first, I mean, I came to Haiti by accident, really. I was this um, student organizer at CUNY. Shout out to CUNY. Um, and I was kind of invited by accident to participate in what was a solidarity building project, right? So dovetailing off of Buki's excellent research um, around the, the kind of problems in development. Yeah. Um, in Nigeria, Haiti has faced so many of these similar issues of really the harm that development has wrought upon upon this country. Um, so the idea was solidarity, not charity, right? So I came there not as an anthropologist, but then I very soon realized that anthropology, um, some of the tools of anthropology could be critical for for understanding how we wanted to move forward in, in solidarity building. I can talk about that more if you want at a later time, but sure. um, that's kind of how I came to it and how I ended up in Haiti at first meeting all of these social science students, actually, um, in Port-au-Prince. They have a, a faculty of ethnology. They also have a faculty of human sciences there, and I met these peers um, studying anthropology and sociology who were far better read than my peers at the time <laughs> um, and who I was very impressed with and um, who I who I built relationships with. And um, What were you studying at the time? So at the time, again, I, I, that, that's yeah. just as an activist. That's me meeting people. Um, but what oh, okay. came out of that... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Okay. and then okay. what came out of that, though, what I... What I Realized and um, in dialogue with many of my Haitian counterparts um, was that the assassination of this particular professor, who I'll speak more about in um, in a minute, that that this professor was profoundly important for them in their organizing, in their lives, and their transformation um, as as people, as young people. Um, and so that's that's part of how we started to design this this project that I, that I'll describe presently. So um, the story of this professor, his name is Jean-Nil Louis-Just. That's that's in Creole. In French, his name would be Jean-Nil Louis-Just. Um, he he was a social scientist himself. Uh, in a way, it reduces him to call him a sociologist or a, an anthropologist or um, because he was he he was a true uh, interdisciplinary intellectual. He was trained um, in social service in th- at the University of Pernambuco in Brazil, um, and his his the amount of intellectual production, scholarly production um, that he's responsible for is is really incredible um he he theorized a lot about what was going on in haiti about the problems of haiti um his he he was a marxist a a true marxist um and he he was responsible for as the students say that he was responsible for their their kind of political 
awakenings, their their kind of the the critical consciousness that they that they started to grasp when they studied with him or around him. Um, and he was also, a, I mean, he was a man of action um, throughout his life. So even in the 80s, um, as a student himself, he had been engaged in anti-Duvalier, this is the dictator in Haiti at the time, U.S.-backed, um, anti-Duvalier protests, um, which uh, some people credit these student protests in Haiti for kind of beginning the end of that, sparking the end of this dictatorship, which um, we can we could debate that, but, but there is an importance there. Um, he was responsible for organizing a number of, with other people, organizing a number of uh, different types of teacher unions, um, study group, study and action groups um, that involved reading closely uh, Marxist and Marxist-influenced scholars of the 20th century. Um, he was a he was targeted really though as a as a leader of the fight for a minimum wage which happened in Haiti in 2003 2004 um, and then again took more shape in 2007 and 2008 um, and because he was targeted so much as a leader although you know when I went there people were like he's not he's not the leader he was just there as somebody who who encouraged all of us to act um, he, I think this, this public presence that he ha- held, I mean, he spoke on the radio all the time. He was really a true public intellectual, right? A lot of kind of what anthropologists hope to be at some point, right? We hope that people will listen to us, but he really was present, um, in his publishing and, and as an outspoken intellectual and activist. Um, and by some amazing coincidence of the universe, he was, he was shot the same day of the earthquake in 2010 in Port-au-Prince. So he's shot in the eye and in the chest, just coming out of teaching a class um, just a few blocks away from his campus. And the university shuts down. And this is this is many different campuses of, of the state university in Haiti, right? That just like um, other public universities might have, mm-hmm. right, a faculty of law and... Um, or of education, uh, or of medicine. Many of these campuses just shut down. Students were enraged. They went out into the courtyards of their universities immediately. I mean, either either upset um, personally or sad, but really enraged. People were in the streets starting to organize protests, right, against his assassination or his attempted assassination. People rushed to the hospital to go donate blood for him. And all of these people, right, this is hundreds of people, if not thousands, are outside protesting in his name when the earthquake hits, right? So the earth shakes for around 30 seconds, um, and around 300,000 people are dead, right? But all of these people protesting in Jean-Louis name are outside and safe from harm, when the earthquake hits. So I remember hearing that story at first, right, when I when I started to build relationships with student activists there, and it was just so for profound for, I mean, right, I, I think that's just an incredible story anyway, but to hear students talk about how his death saved their life and not only 
um, in the sense of their physical safety, but but doubly um, in the sense that because he helped encourage their their critical political consciousness, um, that their lives were kind of saved in that way too. So our project focused uh, around his memory and his legacy, um, which is very contested. He was obviously hated, right, to be assassinated. You've got to be pretty hated. He had many enemies, um, even within the university system. But, uh, yeah, we, we, we conducted about... Uh, in the 60s, I don't know how many oral histories I conducted. It was a lot. It was too many, I think. Um, but stories around his memory, his life, and, and also his legacy. But what was so interesting, too, that, that came out from those, from those oral histories was that it wasn't just the story of Janil, right? It was the story of, of people's own uh, processes of becoming politically conscious, right? Where did they come from? How did they get engaged? How did they start caring about doing something about the conditions around them? Um, and, and so that made it interesting and important. And I think, I think in addition to that, I was looking for, as an anthropologist, I was looking for a project that didn't contribute to this to this image of Haiti that I think is really prevalent of, right? I mean, what are the things that we know about Haiti? Like that anyone has ever heard about Haiti, right? Can, I mean, even, well, uh, I'm not going to ask y'all as scholars, well, you know, well, you know, I know right? it's a country. Okay. So it's a country, right? Um, yeah. but, but I think in the, in the context of public media, right? You always, it's always negative, right? It's always something that like earthquake or political uprisings or like, it's always seen in this negative light. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah, so poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, right? that's number one. Um, uh, oh, yeah, go I'm ahead, always Ricky. curious because when I look at when it got its, its independence, like, yeah. Yeah. you know, and where they are today, and, you know, things I know about Haiti even become before coming closer to where Haiti is. Like, yes, yes. I have this image of, like, poorer than even the, some of the countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. Sure. Which is like, and what part of what we used to measure, you know, that potential of a country is when it actually got its independence. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's a that's such an important point, Buki. Because, um, well, I mean, first of all, it's it is an incredibly poor country, right? There's no question about that. The conditions there for most people are very, very difficult, and I don't want to mince words about that. But to continue to portray it as a place that's, like, eternally miserable, right, where there's not a possibility for change, it's undeveloped, Mm -hmm. people are backwards and superstitious, right, all of these kind of tropes um, of Haitians, um, let alone, right, other stereotypes or... um, kind of demonizations of Haitians, for instance, in the 80s, Haitians being blamed for the HIV and AIDS epidemic, right? This is huge. Um, there, I, yeah, I didn't want to contribute to to that narrative, if I can yeah. use that word, of, of Haiti. I wanted to, right? I mean, I got there and I saw people really 
trying to change the, the world around them. I saw people who cared about their circumstances and their families, right? Students who were studying in the capital, but who almost in all came from rural areas of Haiti, um, thinking about how they were going to change their hometowns, right? This, this constant searching for what can we do for each other. And even in rural areas where people have... Um, I mean, microcredit's big in Haiti yeah. now, too, but, but where people have developed other types of kind of collectives of ways of caring for each other. Not to idealize that, right? Not to, not to say that that means people are okay, but people are actively trying to change their circumstances. And I think, um, I think continuing to talk about Haiti as if it's just this passive and, I mean, place that'll always be miserable, first of all, is a, is, is a big problem. But, but a, a second point, that you you that comes to mind when you talk about Haiti's liberate or well its revolution yeah. really um, is just so important. Frederick Douglass famously said that um, Haiti has never been forgiven for being black, right? I mean, so so what what does that call to mind? It actually right there. So their revolution yeah. from from France, which some it started in. It was sparked in 1791 and in 1804. Yeah. That's when they kicked out Napoleon's army, right? So the most powerful army yeah. in the world <laughs> at that time, right, by people who had been enslaved, right? I mean, it's it's an incredible story, yeah. right? That, right, it was it was cut off their heads and burned down their houses. Get out. We are done. We are done with slavery. We will find ways, pathways toward liberation. So. Um, in that way, that idea, right, that 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 it shared, uh, excuse me, it, it scared and shook um, some of these enormous powers of the time. I mean, yeah. Haiti, Haiti in the 18th century was an enormous. I mean, they were like the Saudi. Uh, this is insensitive, perhaps, but they were like the Saudi Arabia of of sugar, of coffee, of the things that made France become a real power right yeah. the revolution then ends up being responsible for the louisiana purchase right the, the it's it's the beginning of a very complex relationship between the u.s and haiti which um i'll speak more about in our next segment um but this history is so important for the present right yeah. because that the the fear right of of a slave revolution and what that meant um Right. It's it's more than not not just forgiving them. Right. For being black and being independent. It's punishing. It's pun and continuing to punish through either actual literal occupation or through these failed yeah, these development things. projects yeah. or through coup after coup after coup yeah. um, backed by the U.S. Right. And now right now we have to think about what it means that that Haitians are, are in the U S are being targeted for deportation. Um, so yeah, I hope that describes at least yeah. part of my, I mean, that gives us a <laughs> yeah. historical background and, uh, just very quickly before we go to break, you mentioned Marxism. So for those who don't aren't familiar with that, can you explain very quickly what Marxism is and what it means to be a Marxist? Can I explain very quickly what being a Marxist is and what yeah, it means? Yeah, which, no, which you can't. But I can, but, I can try. Yeah. Give us like um, the, the Spark Notes version of Marxism, yeah, which is really hard. For, for Janil, for Janil Vigis, um, it 
meant that he considered he 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 examined the world through through a lens which understood the plight of poor people as existing in relationship to these to these longer histories right part of what i was just mentioning before of 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 exploitation right the the extraction of resources and of labor um, understanding disparity and wealth inequality through that lens, right? That's, that's I think, the first thing, um, right? How do we understand the world around us? We understand, right? A Marxist would say, um, understanding that there's a ruling class, right? There's a class yeah. that has power, that has the class access. class system, you know. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I think spooky that there's a, that there's a ruling class yeah. which has, which owns which owns the, the majority of, of the wealth, right? As well as the ability to produce, right? And how do they produce? They produce through extracting value or through, right? Basically, they produce their wealth through... The, like, exploitation. Through exploitation, Dition. right? Through, yeah. through keeping a class of people disempowered and poor, right? And we can understand that on a global scale. For Janil, that that is what he was talking about, right? You have to understand Haiti in connection to to the U.S. and to France and to Canada even, right? Um, as well as in relationship to the Dominican Republic, right? The country with which it shares an island and um, and also a complicated relationship of labor. So so that's that's the first part, right? There's a theoretical part of how, how you can understand the exploitation in the world, um, as well as, as well as how to change it, right? So that's a key mm. part, that right? Is, that, that it, it doesn't just sit in, lies. yeah, it doesn't just sit in the world of theory. It sits also in in our actions, right? So it it means that there has to be this unity of both understanding the roots of problems, right, um, in class politics. Um, but also working to change them. So I think I think that's right as academics that that that's interesting, right? The yeah. the requirement of action, right, is not is not always asked of us as academics or as scholars. Mm-hmm. So for Janil, I think what what it meant was that he had to act, reflect on his actions, right? Think about what theories worked in the context of Haiti, um, and then. Right, and then apply them again. Right, this constant process of mm. reflection, action, mm-hmm. reflection. That's mm. the that's like a really uh, yeah. I don't know. If but my advisor hears that, he'll be like, "That's not the right definition." Yeah. Of well, let's let's get Dr. Yelvington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, thank you, thank you so much for explaining that because mm. I think oftentimes um, Marxism uh, it tends to tends to get a negative connotation absolutely in, in yeah. popular culture, and it's important to really clarify. And yeah. explain what that theoretical perspective means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I think of like people bringing up Marxism outside of an academic context, it's almost always like demonized. Sure. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and I, and I think it's as a result of the action that is, you know, like polarization of like seeing academic as when you put action into it, like action is more of you know, like, oh, this is antithetical to what we are doing, you know. We are scholars. We see things this way. We use theory. We approach things logically, not violently. So, and that is a big question to activism. You know, how can we do activism without 
necessarily being violent. Yeah, that's also a good point. This is like a big question, right? I mean, Janil was not a pacifist, right? And in some ways, when you look at the situation of Haiti, right? I mean, if and if you if you think about right, you've talked about what ec- economic violence a bit, yeah. your idea of economic violence, and and but the reality is a violence that poverty reeks, excuse me, reaps upon people. Um, It's just, right, that violence is already so present, right? The violence of starvation, the violence of food insecurity, the violence of unemployment, the violence of... Homelessness. Yeah, yeah. Violence of silence, too. Oh, Yeah, now we're talking Dang, about right yeah. what what we need to then right, who, yeah. to whom are we accountable? Bookie's getting right? deep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, how do we think about violence? What yeah. and what it means and where it is? And and I think through a Marxist lens, yeah. right, it allows us to look at the violence of and exploitation, yeah. yeah, and of the histories of of colonialism, right, of of yeah. a bigger power, kind of this this foreign control of another region yeah. and its people. Um, and what violence that means, and then, right? If if we want to do something about it, what kind of actions does it require? Do? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So I think that's a good spot to take a break, and we're gonna play some music. We're actually gonna play some music from Haiti. Yes, we are. So we're gonna yeah. keep the theme, and then when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Laura. So enjoy. Welcome back. Welcome back. Here you are. Uh, This is Bulls Radio WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. You're you're listening to Anthro Alert. This is a show about anthropology and why it matters. Our guest, our two guests actually this hour, uh, Buki, um, so he was on our show previously. He was helping us or he was talking to us about his research on microfinance in Nigeria. And this hour, we're talking to Laura, PhD student here in applied anthropology, and she is discussing the work of her master's thesis in Haiti that was looking at uh, student social movements. And so, uh, one of the things that you did during that work was that you collected oral histories. And so, my question then is, what? Um, so now that you have finished with your MA thesis work and your full-fledged PhD student, um, what do you, actually, what are you hoping to do? What would you like to do with those oral histories that you have collected? Um, yeah, what does that, what does that look like? So one thing that's so cool about oral history, um, I'm going to just, I'm going to mention what oral history is just in case yeah, our, our listeners don't know, right? I mean, it's sort of self-explanatory, right? That, that history, the history that's told, the history that Am yep. I not? Yep, yep. The the history that's not um, that that hasn't been recorded by official channels of media right, or or textbooks. So a lot of that right that's the that's the history that that's for instance of of Marxists who who are never talked about right or who are silenced literally through 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 assassination. Um, so that's part of why I chose oral history. The other thing is that the the illiteracy rate in Haiti is so high that for any product of my research to be accessible, even to write in Creole, which is the language the, the language of Haiti, um, it, there's there's a very limited audience of people who who can 
who can read or or um, for it to whom the the research is accessible so a cool thing about audio and the oral is that it doesn't rely on this sort of tyranny of literacy to be heard so the really cool thing I think that that I've been wanting to do with it I'm needing funding to do this but is to edit portions of the interviews to actually make an audio documentary that can be broadcast on radio even if our listenership uh, to this show is is limited in Haiti radio is such a big deal right I mean part of it right given the illiteracy rates um, and just the way media is -hmm. circulated there Mm -hmm. radio is how people hear about things right away right Um, among other among other ways of spreading information but but orally right I mean that's it's just such a key component like of, of that speaking um, so that's that's the hope and that's that's also part of what the participants and my kind of co collaborators or co-conspirators um, on that project um, wanted right was was something tangible right I mean I think also as applied anthropologists, something that's so important for us is, right, what is the product? What's the intervention we're actually making? What's the right. point, right? right. Um, we can produce interesting theory, which I care about very much, Good. but producing something that can be, that, that's tangible um, really matters. So producing some type of audio documentary either in shorter segments or a longer one um, that can be used not only in Haiti but in the diaspora mm-hmm. right in Haitian radio stations mm-hmm. in Florida and Boston and New York of which there are many that are listened to a lot um, would would provide an audience um, and who, who could be educated about not only Janiel but the movements of which he was a part um, so that was that was the dream, right? As I right. as I envisioned the pro- the project, and that that's yeah. still the the product. Um, Do you have connections to these types of radio stations, or people that have connections to or, to or get even, them on the radio, or even uh, podcasting of some sort? Right. Yeah. Sure. One, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasting has yeah. opened up what people are able to listen to in all kinds of new ways. Um, I certainly do have connections in in Boston to uh, a couple. Haitian radio programs, um, uh, as well as as well as in Haiti, right? Um, oral oral histories are uh, usually put into archives, right? right. And then it's yeah. like who can access that archive? Who can actually go in and listen? And or right. who will? Right. Even if yeah. they even if they want to, who will go in and listen to however many? I mean, like three hundred hours of recordings I have. Um, maybe Only if me. you have to. <laughs> Yeah, Someone yeah, has yeah. To. So th- I mean, the stories are incredibly right. compelling, yeah. right? On their own, they really are the stories that people tell, um, especially of Janiel, because he, right, because he became a martyr, very much for this movement, mm-hmm. um, and also because of his his presence, his charisma uh, during his life. And the influence he had, there were already, I think, uh, ideas about him and what he was capable of. He, about, I want to say two months before he was killed, he w- 
was speaking at a public forum, and someone it was a it was a time also of of a lot of threats and violence about like toward this this very active student and teacher and also factory worker movement that was forming. He he was asked, "Aren't you scared? Right? What's going to happen? Aren't you scared that you're going to be targeted? People know, right? Historically in Haiti, people know that to be to be an activist is can be a life-threatening endeavor. Mm. So he mm-hmm. was asked this straight up, right? Aren't you terrified? And his response was, the day that they kill me, the earth will tremble. Right? So what could we read from that, right? Some people, right, especially people who um, who are religious or who read a mystical kind of element into that statement, um, saw it as this prophetic statement, right? Literally the earthquake happens just a few hours after his, his death. Um, but other people really understood it as, you know, the earth will tremble in the, in the sense that we have built a movement and people are not going to stay quiet. People will, there, there will be an uprising. Right? Unfortunately, the the earthquake really devastated a lot of the social movement itself, right? Just because of what, what can you, how can you organize? I mean, or it, it, it transformed into different types of care, right? Instead of kind of political demands. But in this way, right, the narratives of it, these different stories that people tell end up being really interesting, right? The idea that someone's like, he he was prophetic, he predicted the earthquake, or no, come on, he's a Marxist. He wasn't a religious person at all. Um, so in that in that way, yeah, the, sh- the stories should be shared and, um, and hopefully will once I'm able to get a little bit of money to focus on editing, <laughs> editing this audio down into palpable products that, that can be shared. So what are you thinking um, for a project or, you know, what ideas are forming for your dissertation? That's a great going question. Forward? Yeah, that's a, that's an important question for me yeah. specifically. <laughs> One that um, I assume takes up much of your time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I had originally hoped to continue this work on Janiel. Um, the fragmentations of the of the Haiti side, um, which is kind of the whole side, <laughs> I guess. The uh, but the, fra- the the fragmentations of this this social movement that have happened in the last few years have made it a lot more difficult to think about how I would participate in in a project and collaborate with different different people right I, I, it, it would force me to choose a side in ways that I, I I'm not yet sure that I'm I'm willing to though I think that will that will continue to be there and as a scholar I will continue that work eventually but right now I'm really interested in what's happening with the, um, I'm, I'm sure some people have heard about this, but the removal of temporary protected status for Haitians in the U.S. This isn't only affecting mm-hmm. Haitians, of course. This mm-hmm. is affecting Salvadorans, Nicaraguans. Can you explain Honduran. what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So temporary protected status was given to, at least to Haitians, um, I can speak more to that, following the 2010 earthquake. Right. The idea was, okay, if you're here, 
Just don't worry about it. You don't actually have a path to citizenship, right? That we need to be clear about that. There was no actual path to citizenship ever with temporary protected status. Hence, hence temporary there, hence I guess. temporary. Right. Um, but it was, right, it was this idea of if you're here, don't worry about it. Um, and... Can I get into a little history again? Yeah, do it. I think it's important. Drop Uh, some history on us. (laughs) Sure. Well, so this is to continue, actually, um, a bit about our our discussion of kind of the 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 havoc that that imperialism and colonialism has 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 wrought upon Haiti, um, and that complication, the 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 complicated relationship between the U.S. and Haiti that exists. to be clear, right, in 1960, there were about 5,000 Haitians in the U.S., right? And then as of 2015, um, I think the official numbers were something like 450,000. Um, and that's those numbers are probably low, too, because it's self-reported, right? So right. do you consider yourself Haitian or African-American? Sure. Right, as yeah. right, af- especially after uh, a couple generations of being right. here, sure. um, and and also because of people who did not have legal documents, um, who 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 didn't get reported. So that's one thing about about temporary protected status or TPS. I'm going to use <laughs> from sure. now on, um, is that a lot of people who were here already uh, in in ways that were really insecure and vulnerable ways where they didn't have have documents, legal documents. It, it was like a relief, right? It's like, okay, now I'm here and I can work um, still in low-paid industries, absolutely, but, um, but not the same type of undocumented labor that, um, that, that exists in this country. The migration, though, from Haiti to the U.S., um, really is so fundamental it has so fundamentally been caused by the actions of the u.s that that's part of what makes it so tough to think about right what 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 kind of legislation and what kind of actions um are being taken against haitians in the u.s now right because of that responsibility um so in the late 80s is when we start to see more migration coming from Haiti, and that's um, that's because of a lot of political instability. Um, by the early '90s, there's another right. They they called it a crisis, but it was sort of an ongoing um, an ongoing difficult situation of um, ha- Haitians really having to flee. Right, there was a direct connection because in 1991. The U.S. Um, that was responsible for a coup of Jean Bertrand Aristide. Um, that's 1991, right? And suddenly, right after that, the um, the military in Haiti started going after, very actively persecuting the followers of his his party and his regime, right? Um, and and already, right, we talked about kind of the stigma around HIV that people were experiencing in the 80s and 90s and as Haitians in the U.S. So all of those things are at play, right, um, 
in the early 80s also there was um, there was a virus going around the Dominican Republic particularly that affected pigs and the thing about pigs on the island of Hispaniola that's right that's the whole island of of the Dominican Republic and Haiti um, those pigs had been there for hundreds of years and so had developed immune responses right that other pigs right that that weren't indigenous to that area wouldn't wouldn't have and the other thing about that's important about those pigs is that especially for poorer people in rural areas they end up being kind of like little bank accounts piggy banks can I make that joke <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to myself but um right but there it's a kind of security right if we, I have to send someone to school and I don't have the money for it right now I can sell my pig Right. Livestock is can, a very common mechanism of a savings account, essentially. Absolutely, right. yeah. yeah. Not not right. only in Haiti, right? right. This is throughout right. Latin America, yeah. throughout Africa, absolutely. Many, yeah, many places. Um, so, right, that's that's a big deal, right? And um, as this virus was starting to go around and affect some of the pigs in Haiti, the U.S. decided, let's kill let's kill the pigs. We're scared that it's going to come and infect pigs in the US, right? And it it became right, it became really scary for especially for the for for agro business, right? Right? That what's going to happen if our pigs get infected. So the US insisted really that the Haitian regime at the time, this is 82, I think slaughtered all of these pigs. Um, which had this enormous economic impact, right? So all of these things are going on, right? In addition to um, this this economic insecurity, or right, this is an act I think Buki of economic violence, yeah. right, against people. Absolutely. Um, in addition to that, um, there are these other political insecurities happening, right? Because of because of the U.S. Um, and, and the different types of regimes that they backed. There's also um, the issues of some of the international trade requirements that were put in place for Haiti where farmers were encouraged to, right, instead of having subsistence agriculture, right, where you could still feed your family, right, if you're doing subsistence ap- agriculture, where you're growing vegetables, they were encouraged to um, grow kind of more value crops like cashews, right, or coffee, um, or even agrofuels, Um and, and basically, right, this kind of export-driven policy also contributed to kind of a, 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 a less secure and, and more, right, more impoverished situation for most Haitians, right? So this is immediately, right, like what's, what's, what's going to cause someone to uproot themselves and try to find a place to live where they can support themselves, right? No one wants to get up and leave their family and their friends and their culture. I mean, the rich culture and history of Haiti, the music, the, um, the food, Haitian food is really good. Y'all you should eat some Haitian food if you can find some good Haitian food, but, uh, right. I mean, people don't want to uproot their lives. And, um, 
it's so it's something that Haitian Haitian migration really has to be understood in relationship to those to those larger political and economic forces which are which are tough to kind of think through sometimes right it's not mm-hmm. it's not like an immediate thing that you can just say well the US caused this migration in the first place right it takes mm-hmm. some kind of parsing through well how did that happen why it's a complicated thing mm-hmm. um, but i think once we start to understand that complicated relationship um, we can t- start to understand what what it means right so now 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 what happens right now temporary protected status right which was granted in 2010 after the earthquake by the obama administration is being removed so people have until mid july of next year to leave right that's it's it's going to affect uh the 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 estimated numbers are about 60,000 Haitians in the US um who have built lives here who have worked right who were some of them were working in the undocumented workforce um who then right started to take some of these um like manual labor or uh service jobs um, but most of the, or many of them have children here. Um, that's what some of the studies that have come out now about who has TPS um, are saying, right? But they've really built their lives here. Right? In addition to this, we need to think about remittances, right? The money that people here send back to their relatives, right, in their home country, which currently, right, remittances are a third of Haiti's. GDP. Wow. That's a a lot. That's a lot. So even if, right, even if, okay, let's say there are half a million Haitian descended or Haitian recently migrated Haitians to the U.S., 60,000 Haitians being deported is going to have an impact. In addition to that, um, in addition to that, what? I lost my train of thought finally. Prattling on for twenty minutes. What the effect of that, of that kind of step, you know, like taking back those people, returning them back home, yeah. and an economy that survives on remittances, and immediately <laughs> that will be zero. Yeah. You know, multiply with other things, right. those people are going to meet at home. It's, right. it's going right. to be chaotic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's this cascade effect. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something people don't, th- they're not thinking about quite enough, right? I mean, I think there was a lot of fear after the last election. There's a lot of, right, hatred of, of the, the yeah. current administration. But I think people aren't necessarily thinking about how internationally, transnationally, the effects yeah, the of, of policies yeah. are being felt much much more severely so that's tricky um but so in addition to remittances right it's people who have built their lives here what what happened to what happens if you're a four-year-old right in 2010 and eight years later you're saying you know you're thinking about having to go to haiti maybe you don't speak creole right right? maybe you don't even speak that language so yeah that's the yeah that's my current interest it's it's pressing and and it's important so we have about four minutes to wrap up um if you have any final thoughts um any takeaways anyone you would like to 
to think. Or I guess we can pose the same question to you that we did to Buki. How does this set you up for after your PhD? Yeah. You briefly comment. Yeah, on the that. dreaded question. I think yeah, a lot of social right. science grad students are asking themselves. Right. Um, I mean, I part of what's so cool about our program is that I think we do get trained in, in ways that, yeah. um, right, because it's an applied anthropology program, we get trained in ways that prepare us to work outside of academia. Mm-hmm. However, I would like to work in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily in like a big research university, but I think, right, as we're thinking about which publics we can we can reach right who who is who is that public right mm-hmm. i think an important public is exists right in our classrooms mm-hmm. i'm teaching cultural anthropology now i love teaching it's uh it's such a wonderful way to see people grappling with new ideas um and and to promote anthropology in a particular way right mm-hmm. and kind of yeah. on my terms <laughs> too yeah. um so that's that's one thing um i think i see the current work yeah preparing me right theoretically practically to work as an applied anthropologist and also as a also as a scholar also as a teacher but i think um i think it also in a way, is not about me, right? I mean, I think, I'm, I hope, right, the effects that, right, for instance, this documentary might have, right, and just educating people about someone who was important to, to students and that they want to they keep his memory alive, right? Um, it's a small contribution, perhaps, but it is one, right, That's gonna, that, that will last long after whatever my career is, right? Or if I can look at document what's happening to people who are now under threat right so insecure about how do you build your future right when you don't know about what your legal status is going to be um what resources do you rely on how how do you even how do you how do you approach any type of well-being right how do you deal with the stress what networks are you reaching out to right if i can document some of that Right in in ways that are useful to people on the ground. I'm hoping that that's that's the effect that matters. Mm. Um, that maybe that's a way that I just dodged having to answer the career question, but um, but I do think it's kind of less about me. Yeah. So, so I heard you say, well, it depends. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's so, like the, the two word version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll see how successful you know Anthro Alert is in promoting anthropology and. We'll see. <laughs> Getting people to understand yeah. how important yeah. it is, and okay. then, then our, they'll hire me. Yeah, our reach of three people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but this maybe is, they're three very important people. Yeah, but know. again, thank you so much for having me on the program, and thank I'm just so I'm ex- so I'm so excited that you have this space. Um, yeah, yeah. We are here for you. Thank you, guys. Yes. Yeah. Nice yeah. to come. Nice yep. to see one or two things. Yeah. Yeah. We enjoyed having you. Our guys audience too. Yeah. 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 There was actually a lot more connection between your guys' work than than what might have been originally thought of when yeah, I read exactly. your proposals. But yeah. as you guys kind of got into it, yeah. you know, with the, the history and, you yeah. know, how we frame violence and things like that, there was actually a lot more co- connections connection. than, exactly. than yeah. what may be seen on the surface. So it was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. I hope you guys did, too. 
Uh, Renee, any final comments for us? You want to shut down the show for this week? Yeah, so thanks again for listening. Um, this is Bulls Radio WSF 89.7 HD3, Tampa, 1620 AM on campus. and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. Uh, this was Anthro Alert. Find us on AnthroAlert.com. Thank you. We'll see you next week.